On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hi, I lost my little dog. Can you help me find him? Your mom's been hurt. She's in the hospital. She sent me to come and get you. What's the secret code word? I don't know the code word. I'm a professional photographer. Come on, hop in the car. I'll take your picture. You tell anybody about our little secret, I'll kill your dog. Stranger danger. A simple, perfect rhyme that holds inside it a terror common to almost all parents and children in this country, especially those in the extra-safe American suburbs. We were taught about evil strangers in school, saw the faces of missing little boys and girls on milk cartons, in newspapers, on TV. McGruff the crime dog glumly announced shocking statistics of missing children during commercials between cartoons, and Teddy Ruxpin sang his eerie song about keeping children safe. But the stranger danger we know today was hardly the beginning. Of course, the fear of kidnapping lives in our very DNA, a fear that has been with us since the beginning of time. But how real is the threat that an evil person completely unknown to a child will do the unthinkable, take that child, forever? Only 50 to 100 children are abducted each year by random strangers, a number that continues to stay about the same year after year. Although one single child taken by a stranger is a devastating tragedy, the numbers mean that a child in the U.S. only has a 1 in 1.5 million chance of being taken by a non-family member. So I started wondering, how did this moral panic, this thing that we're all so familiar with, come to be in the United States? And why does it continue to last, even when the statistics are pretty clear, that not very much danger actually exists? It seems that a part of us must want or even need to believe in the cliché kidnapper in the white van. Fear is a really powerful tool, and fear more than anything else shapes our political and social future. And it's certainly shaped our past. So I keep wondering... Why do we fear the wrong things? On this episode, I'll take a look at the evolution of America's boogeyman, the stranger, the purpose this villain serves, and also what it might be covering up. America's Most Wanted was my favorite show when I was a kid. Maybe that tells you all you need to know about me. The image of an eight-year-old in 1996 taking mental notes of all the hardened faces that flashed across the screen, the states in which they were last spotted, John Walsh's rehearsed condemnations of each criminal, the way he would point at the camera, right through the screen, right at me. I was a kid myself when I learned the heart-wrenching story of John Walsh's son, six-year-old Adam Walsh, who was brutally murdered in 1981 by a man who took him from outside the arcade of a Hollywood, Florida, Sears department store. Adam was one of several highly publicized cases of young boys going missing in the late 70s to late 80s that were picked up by strange men they had never met. The first was six-year-old Eaton Patz on his way to school in Manhattan in 1979. Eaton's pictures showed blue eyes, a blonde bowl cut grown shaggy, a red and white striped shirt. The nation would come to know his face as if he were their own missing child as they stared up at the giant photos of him projected in Times Square. When a picture of a boy resembling Eaton was found during a police raid on the North American Man-Boy Love Association, the reports stunned the country. The existence of NABLA itself stunned the country. 
And though the picture ended up being a boy other than Eaton, the early reports were more than enough to advance the dangerous stranger narrative to a degree of depravity that the culture had not yet come to accept. The word pedophile was suddenly on the lips of every parent, and it became a national obsession and remains so to this day. And then, two more kidnappings hit the news. 12-year-old Johnny Gosh in 1982 from West Des Moines, Iowa, while on his paper route, and then Jacob Wetterling in 1989 from St. Joseph, Minnesota, while riding his bike to the video store. Along with Eden and Adam, these boys became some of the famed kids on the milk cartons, and their pictures were also printed on pizza boxes, grocery bags, and junk mail. Jacob's disappearance generated an unprecedented community response from the state of Minnesota. On a bright day following his kidnapping, hundreds of balloons were released into the sky in honor of Jacob's hope. While much of the town of St. Joseph stood and wept together, white ribbons pinned to their shirts, tied to doorknobs, mailboxes, car antennas. The Minnesota Vikings wore hats to honor Jacob's hope. An original song was written and played constantly on radio stations across the state. 38 million Americans watched the first airing of the 1983 made-for-TV movie called Adam that was based on the Walsh's story. It was broadcast three years in a row, and each screening pulled huge numbers, and each time it was followed by pictures and descriptions of real missing kids. Monday, NBC presents another world premiere movie. They were a loving, happy family until their son disappeared. I've searched the whole mall and I can't find him. Every parent's fear becomes the movie you must see. Whatever happens, I love you. Go on. Starring Hill Street Blues' Daniel J. Trovati. Monday at 9, 8 Central and Mountain. Safety tapes on Stranger Danger were sent out with hundreds of thousands of Teddy Ruxpin dolls in preparation for Christmas, and many were donated to schools. For those of you who may not be familiar, Teddy Ruxpin was like the Tickle Me Elmo of the mid-80s, a smash hit, a bestseller, but also an educational toy. A tape deck was built into the back of the stuffed animal, and its mouth and eyes moved along to the stories and songs that it would tell and sing. Millions of kids heard some of these messages. Hitchhiking is really not a very good thing to do. No one should touch you on the parts of your body covered by a bathing suit. Grown-ups should not be asking kids for any help. They should ask another grown-up if they need some help. Before these publicized kidnappings, there weren't many laws protecting children. From Jacob's disappearance and his mother's tireless work came the Sex Offender Registry, a flawed project that Patty Wetterling nonetheless continues to help reform. Soon after, Congress created the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and began to change laws around waiting periods, which could be up to 72 hours before the police would begin to search for a lost child. Hoping to maximize attention to their cause, the NCMEC used overblown and misleading statistics of child abduction through the 1980s and beyond, combining the number for all missing children who are almost always taken by a non-custodial parent or who run away from home. One way they got their dreary message across was through a series of cartoon commercials starring the world-weary McGruff the Crime Dog, a kid-friendly cop who's just seen it all. Uh, that's Jenny. But that's not Jenny's dad. If she gets into that car, you may be looking at Jenny for the last time. I'm McGruff, the crime dog. 
Let me show you something. See that playground? A lot of kids there. Every day in this country, 60 kids disappear. 20,000 kids, one kid at a time. Maybe your kid on your street, just like Jenny. Eden and Jacob's true killers would not be convicted until 2017. Johnny's case never even saw an arrest, and Adam's case was officially closed in 2008, but with no conviction, with just this announcement from police and John Walsh that they were satisfied that serial killer Otis O'Toole had been responsible, who had died in prison in 1997. These kidnappings were hugely famous crimes that were without resolutions for so many years, and they would forever alter the way we think about the safety of our children, about the worst possible things to fear, and about what the boogeyman can really do. The brand new phenomenon of the 24-hour news cycle played constant footage of the kids, and interviews with their parents, press conferences with police. It made the crimes feel personal, and it made it easier to feel what the parents were feeling. In combination with the rise of these child advocacy groups that were just sounding the alarm, it made the risk feel like it was slowly trolling down each and every suburban American street, including my own. And that's next. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. During the summer, I mean, you hear those stories where it's like, oh, yeah, we'd get on a bike at, like, 7 a.m. and we wouldn't be back till sunset. That was literally what happened to me. Me like, too. i get, like, a string of black cats on my bike, and I wouldn't show up home until it was dark. That I mean, was my life. Well, <clears throat> we are now approaching the park that was attached to our middle school. I'm here with uh, my childhood friend, Jake Weholt. We're here kind of reminiscing about our own little mini stranger danger panic that happened in our Seattle suburb. 
in what year was it, do we think? All right, so it was fifth grade. I was in Mr. McDowell's class. That is like 98 to 99. All right. Yeah. So we were 11. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Yeah. What do you remember? (laughs) So, yeah, we, uh, like, there was a, it was an afternoon, and it was before everyone was going home, and we were handed out, like, letters they were just like a single sheet printed. Every kid got one. It was and just it, like right on our desk. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And like you had to take it home to our parents because like back then, like there was no email, right? There's no like way no. to like alert the parents of what was going on. Uh, so just we had to stuff it in a backpack, send yeah, it home exactly. on a prayer. Like, yeah, exactly. Yep. And of course, like it's. Uh, elementary school so all the paper is like it was like turquoise or something like Mm -hmm. that or like goldenrod and uh, it told us about how there were two girls up at the middle school who like had an encounter one night like late one night they had an encounter I think it was probably like the night before or something they had an encounter of like a man like approaching them big scar on his face and like wearing a bandana and stuff oh i remember the the scar and the bandana most of all and uh yeah they like they had to like escape into the night and they got home and they told their parents about it and their parents like alerted the school to like i don't know what the school was supposed to do no but but i mean this was this is a park that for for context uh i live maybe or my family lived about 10 minute walk from here and you yeah. you were also around here all the time yeah and so it was like a place that we often went and it felt like a, a place that was considered a safe place oh, for your kids yeah. to go hang out it's right next to the school yeah it's right next to the school and and just to give like a description of what where we're at right now there's like a playground there's a tennis court here a fenced in tennis court and then the schools behind us and then there's a field so it's very not scary like I don't feel nervous really right now at all no, but uh no I remember part of the story went that and this is kind of like even as a kid where I started to go hmm <laughs> you know I started to go yeah hmm. sure and uh this? and it was that to get away from this um scar-faced pseudo biker they had to run and they jumped and climbed this fence here this just regular tennis court fence and jumped into the tennis court which would effectively have trapped them because there's only two entrances to this giant cage that they essentially (laughs) chose to climb into and it's pretty high i mean it's 10 feet they would have had to have climbed 10 feet And have also gotten away. And that just sounded a little yeah, suspect no to me. No you know, sense. it made no sense. But after that letter went home, I mean, what do you remember? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, of course, like, my mom was all over this shit. Because, like, we all wanted something to, like, be kind of freaked out about. Like, people would move in and out of the neighborhood. And, like, like they'd be, like, creepy people. And, like, there would always be stories about them. And, oh, like, yeah. and then this, like, elevated to, like, the story of the week. And, uh... You know, like, there was a whole lot of, like, okay, we, we, we got to have, like, a, a regimented curfew system. You got to be uh, in at night. And then, like, that eventually died down. But what I remember the most was that there was this guy who lived in my neighborhood who had, a like, who dressed like a biker and had a scar on his face. No. And this poor motherfucker, like, like he just happened to fit the look. 
And he also was an avid walker. So he'd be like walking around the neighborhood like in the mornings. And my mom would be like, that's the guy. He's right there. Why aren't the police doing anything about this? And that's important to note that I remember it even being on the local news. Oh it, it was even on the local news, and I, and this could just be my memory deciding to invent this, but I remember a composite sketch <laughs> no, with really? the scar and the bandana, but it was, like, big news. And what I like to think about, of course, spoiler for all of you out there, it turned out that they had just been late getting home and decided to make up a story that would sort of absolve them of getting in trouble which is something we can all say that we've done <laughs> they probably thought it was just going to be like oh yeah i'm not gonna get in trouble and then like a week in yeah. they're like how do we even this really got like, out of hand <laughs> this got this out of hand really, really got fast. away from us yeah I was 100% a contributor to the little <laughs> mini hysteria that we had because I remember just, like, seeing a guy carrying groceries down my street being, like, like calling my friend on my landline and being like, I just saw him. Like, I definitely just saw him, and he's definitely right outside my house. And, like, it's definitely the, the thing that made me want to do what I'm doing now. Like, it made me realize how how much a culture of fear, as much as I know I was, like, 11, but I was like, huh, this is weird. I wasn't like, this is a culture of fear. But I thought, huh. There's something to the fact that all you had to do was throw a match on this and yeah. it just erupted into flames. <laughs> it must happen all the time. It happens all the time. I'm making a podcast about it. <laughs> Stay, tuned. Stay tuned. Most people love a little child. Some grown-ups, though, are bad. The bad ones look like good ones, like any mom or dad. So that is why you must not talk to strangers that you meet. Don't let them give you any toys or anything to eat. More after this. And now, back to the show. The fear of the American child snatcher certainly didn't start with the milk carton kids. In fact, the most famous warning attached to stranger danger, you know, don't take candy from strangers, well, that stretches back in time over 140 years to a little blonde boy named Charlie, who went missing on July 1st, 1874, and the countrywide media frenzy that would follow. Charlie Ross and his brother Walter Lewis were playing outside in Germantown, Pennsylvania, when a man with glasses and a red mustache pulled up in a buggy. It was the same man that Charlie and Walter had told their father about the previous day, the nice man that had given them candy. A crying Walter was found far from home and driven back to his neighborhood. He told his father that two men had taken them on a ride to buy fireworks, and when Walter had entered the store, the buggy left with Charlie. The newspapers started reporting on the story right away. Charlie's father, Christian, a dry goods merchant, placed an ad offering a reward of $300 for the safe return of his son. He would eventually receive 23 ransom letters demanding the amount of $20,000 for Charlie's life, an amount equivalent today to about $400,000. Though he lived in a large home, he was in a great deal of debt and could not afford to pay. With his refusal came this onslaught of moral condemnation from the public, so much so that Christian wrote a book defending his actions and telling his story, which was then spread far and wide, stoking the fears of the mainly affluent folks who were both literate and could afford to buy his book. His skilled style of writing made parents feel his pain and imagine it as their own. Charlie would never be found, but through his father's tearful book, the newspapers, and word of mouth, his legacy buried itself deep into the American psyche. 
To this day, we have imprinted a vision of a seemingly nice stranger, one offering candy, maybe one with a weird mustache and creepy glasses, waiting to snatch and murder the most precious, smiling child. After the Charlie Ross story broke and got so popular, newspapers began reporting on child abduction more and more, and today the public still consumes these stories with a hunger, myself included. But soon, Stranger Danger would address ransom kidnappings less and less, and would begin to shift into a much more lurid picture. Ladies and gentlemen, we stop this film deliberately to tell you that two of the young people you are watching have just committed what has become the crime of the century. In 1924, Nathan Leopold Jr. and Richard Loeb were two young college graduates, 19 and 18 respectively. Both lived in large mansions in Chicago's rich neighborhood of Kenwood. Leopold was en route to Harvard the next fall and was already known nationally for his work in ornithology. Loeb was the son of the vice president of the Sears and Roebuck Company and the youngest ever graduate of the University of Michigan at 17. However, he didn't exactly excel academically and was reportedly obsessed with true crime to the point that it interfered with his studies. It was something the two young men had in common, and it was the odd passion that would bind them together. Leopold was in love with the more handsome Loeb, who in turn introduced Leopold to the exciting world of petty crime and vandalism. Leopold was as pretentious as they come, inspired by philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermensch, the idea that there exist certain supermen that possess intelligence and abilities beyond a normal human being, and thus should be excused from the laws and morals of common, unimportant people. The two believed that to cement their status as superior men, they could commit the perfect crime, proving both their intelligence and impunity by getting away with it. They spent seven months preparing all aspects of a kidnapping and murder, However, they held off choosing a child until the morning they were parked outside a local school. They eventually saw a distant cousin of Loeb's leaving the front doors, 14-year-old Bobby Franks, and they coaxed him into the car. They killed him immediately with blows to the head, and then as planned, they dumped his body 25 miles south of Chicago. In order to make it more difficult to identify the body, they also poured acid on his face and on a distinctive scar, as well as on his genitals to hide the fact that he was circumcised. They sent a ransom note asking for $10,000 to further confuse the police. When Bobby Frank's body was discovered the very next day, authorities found a pair of specialty glasses at the scene that they quickly linked to Leopold. The young men were arrested and later confessed that they had chosen the boy at random and had simply gone after the thrill of the kill, that ransom was not the true motive, but a distraction. These shocking revelations, mixed with reports that the body was found unclothed and with marks that suggested a sexual sadism, and it challenged the entire framework of what the American public believed about kidnapping. The trial was highly publicized and featured a new kind of defense, one that focused on the psychology of the criminals. The deranged crimes of these affluent young men were painted by psychiatrists on the defense team as part of their abnormal psychology and troubled childhoods. The public awareness grew that the child murderer could be anyone, not just those from the so-called criminal classes, desperate to make some ransom money. All they had to do was possess a certain psychological disturbance to make every parent's worst nightmare come true. 
Society was definitely better able to process a violent child abduction when the motive was money. The confusing reason for the murder of Bobby Franks, along with all of this media attention on the trial, it whipped the public into the sudden panic that any child could be chosen at random, like Bobby was, to become the victim of a psychopath. And it seemed that there was no way to predict now which strangers to be afraid of. And with the faint suggestion of child sexual abuse, a new seed of fear was planted, one that wouldn't truly bloom until the 1980s when, as we've talked about, the psychopathic pedophile became the new template for our fears. You've taught your children to be polite and friendly, but have you taught them when not to be? Hi there. Do you live around here? Uh-huh. You going to school? Yes. Well, uh, I, I could give you a ride. Last year, 50,000 children disappeared, many of them from nice, safe neighborhoods. It's okay. Come on, help me. Talk to your children about not talking to strangers and do it today. A message for your child's safety from the American Medical Association. Before the 1870s, before Charlie Ross, the threat of stranger danger looked different still. The Puritans arrived in the New World not long after the Pilgrims, and in bigger numbers, believing themselves to be God's chosen people. They believed that they were spiritually ordained to conquer in the name of their Lord, to create that city on the hill, an example of purity and religious piety that they believed the world would choose to follow. Though these white settlers were the original American strangers, they soon flipped the script. They viewed the local tribes as actual agents of Satan, the darkness to their light, and the wars for indigenous land were extremely brutal and saw many child victims. Stories of white children kidnapped by tribes were the most popular legends of New England, though they were as exaggerated as the stories of kidnapping strangers are today. But those legends helped cement for the Puritans a clear fight between good and evil and allowed them the moral high ground needed to carry out what was to come. The harsh reality about stranger danger is that, statistically, an American child is safer with a stranger than with their own parents. The vast, vast majority of missing kids aren't taken by strangers. They're taken by family members due to issues like custody battles. Also included in those huge missing child numbers are some of the 2.8 million teenagers that run away from home each year. 43% of those kids are fleeing from physical abuse, 34% from sexual abuse. 50% of those kids were kicked out by their own parents. 40% of those kids identify on the LGBTQ spectrum. The vast, vast majority of sexual crimes against children are committed within that child's family or within that child's close community, over 90%. But how do you make an after-school PSA for that? There's a concept in sociology called the folk devil, coined by Stanley Cohen in 1972. In times of fear especially, our still primitive brains tend toward simplicity, that us-versus-them mentality. Folk devils are the out-group, those that are considered absolutely bad, evil, the problem. Having a folk devil to blame problems on does another harmful thing. It allows us to think of ourselves and our inner circle as the opposite, as completely good. And when we think of ourselves, our communities, and even our country as completely good, we erase our own responsibility, and we avoid holding ourselves and our in-group accountable. When we readjust the idea of stranger danger, when we start to look clearly at our nation's history with kids, there's always been an undercurrent of stolen children. They're kids taken by people in positions of power, kids who also often never saw their families again. Because the same decade that little Charlie Ross went missing, the United States government was taking children from their indigenous families and placing them with white parents in foster care and in Christian boarding schools, 
both as a means of forced assimilation and because it was believed that indigenous women could not mother properly. Tens of thousands of indigenous children from different tribes were forcefully taken from their homes, a practice that lasted in different forms until the 1970s, the time of the milk carton kids, when Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, though native children are still disproportionately removed and placed in foster care. And, since the 1600s, black children of slaves were regularly separated from their families permanently and sold to other white slave owners. The other thing a folk devil does is create justification for unjustifiable crimes. Maybe you can think of a modern example of the government removing children from their parents, over 500 of whom have still not been reunited, who wait and wait at our southernmost border, who may never make it back to their parents again. The media has been prone to fixate on the sensational and rare cases of middle-class white boys like Charlie Ross or Eden Patz who were kidnapped by psychopathic pedophiles. But the reality of who is most at risk doesn't fit that narrative. Statistically, the highest at-risk groups of missing children are black and Latina girls of low economic status, the same groups whose kidnappings receive the littlest amount of media coverage. Our American boogeyman, our nefarious stranger, has obscured many of the real problems that different kinds of children face. This is likely because the real problems seem too complex, too nuanced, too terrifying to even look directly at. Families and communities have to function on a certain level of trust, and so it feels safer to vent our anxieties about our children's safety with a mythical kidnapping stranger. Easier also than to face the cycles of abuse and prejudice that lead to runaway kids, to homelessness, to sexual exploitation, to racist policies, to stolen children. The modern campaign of stranger danger is changing. Children's advocates, including the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, are helping kids to identify dangerous situations rather than just dangerous people. They're even recommending doing away with the term stranger danger completely. More and more, parents and teachers are starting to encourage independence and problem solving. They're teaching their kids that it's okay to say no, even if that means not hugging their uncle or their grandma if they don't feel good about it. They're teaching kids about consent. They're teaching that some strangers can help you if you don't feel safe with someone you already know. They're teaching kids that they have the right to define what feels safe and what doesn't. They're moving away from fear tactics and moving toward empowerment. Don't worry, they're still teaching kids not to go with strangers too, but they're putting it into perspective. They're starting to encourage kids to get back outside, to step back out into the world, to find that feeling that all kids deserve to feel, that feeling that we all hopefully felt, riding a bike, or walking at dusk, or sitting out in the dark, looking at the stars, freedom humming in our little chests. Stranger danger is one of the first ways we teach our children to believe in folk devils, to think in terms of us and them, to be afraid. But armed with critical thinking, they might be better equipped than we were against that old mentality that is so often led to unthinkable harm. Now here's my boy, Teddy Ruxpin, to play us out. Let's keep the world safe for the children. Let's keep it a good place to be. Next time on the show, the stranger takes another form, the Halloween candy poisoner. 
I'll look at how this urban legend came to be through the history of American candy panics to explore how sweets became a symbol of sexual deviance, rebellion, and danger. Episode 2 is already available for download. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Please rate and review to help us out. American Hysteria is written and produced by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith. Produced and edited by Rod Rodriguez. And thanks to my guest, Jake Weeholt. Check out episode two whenever you get the chance, and then join me every two weeks for a new installment of American Hysteria. Thanks for listening.